Turning in our Bibles this morning to the book of Job, the book of Job in the chapter 1. The book of Job in the chapter 1. We'll read together from the verse 1. The Word of God says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was seven thousand sheep and three thousand camels and five hundred yoke of oxen and five hundred she-asses and a very great household. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. His sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose and rent his mantle, shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground and worshipped, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb. Naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all of this, 
Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Amen. Ending our reading there at the verse 22. We come this morning to begin a little series looking at the lives of three individual men of Scripture. And on this Thursday evening past, I got a little concerned when our brother Denver mentioned two of them. And I thought to myself, oh dear. But we are going to look at four messages in the life of Job, four messages in the life of Elijah, and four messages in the life of Daniel. And that will be our studies and concern over these next number of weeks as the Lord leads and guides even in these matters. And so as we come to this message from Job this morning and enter into what will be just a little mini-series as it were in his life and in his experience, we come to what is indeed a very interesting and important book in our Bibles. It is a book that very many people know something about. And indeed, it is also a book from which many who are unsaved and find themselves not in a church on a regular basis such as we do, but nevertheless, they will have an insight or a knowledge of this man and indeed his experience. For many will have heard that commonly uh, mentioned statement, that phrase that's used, that you must have the patience of Job or you would need to have the patience of Job. And that is something that is very much a pointer to all that we find in the Word of God. But whilst this book finds its place chronologically in history, right at the beginning of time, right at the beginning of the days of the early patriarchs, it is, to my understanding, a very misunderstood book when it comes to believers and their insight and knowledge of it. The main reason for this, I believe, is because many overlook the fact that this book is not about Job. This book is all about God. And indeed, when we behold all that happens in the life of Job, and as we see his reaction and experience to all that enters in, we get a great insight into who God is and how God deals with us in our own lives. Now, Job as a character undoubtedly plays a central role to all that goes on in this book. But the vocal point at all times is upon God himself. For in this book, we see outlined truths about his character, which are atypical to other books of Scripture. It is, if you will, a further opening of the curtain that allows us to see more clearly, more vividly, the character and indeed the nature of our God. Now, as we come to consider this book, we will uh, look into the early part of his life and then jump right through the uh, middle part of the book right to the end and seek to summarize all that is contained therein. But nevertheless, as we do so, it's important to keep at the forefront of our minds and understanding that there is a fourfold theme to the book of Job. The first of these themes is simply the sovereignty of God. No surprise, because we've already identified God as being that very central, that very focal character in this book. But as well as the sovereignty of God, we have very clear insight into Satan. We learn much of the invisible foe that we all face. And it is really through what we see recorded here in this book that the invisible foe becomes a little more visible. We see clearly that he's a created being. We see that to him God has given a degree of might and power, but one who in all that he says and one in all that he does is only ever motivated by animosity toward God 
and towards God's people. We also see the theme of suffering. Pain and hardship are evident right throughout this book. And what is recorded here in these pages before us goes some way, not entirely the whole way, but do go some way to answering some of life's great questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? How do you cope with loss? Why do the righteous suffer? Where is God in all my suffering? But the fourth and final theme that we see in this book is that of submission. For Job is an example to us as we see him continually and consistently submitting to the plan and to the will of God. As we enter into this first chapter today, we identify a real man, not some mythical character, but a real man with a real family who faced a real trial that exposed to him the presence, the love, and the grace of a real God. It remain to us today to be a timeless truth that we do well to be aware of and indeed to apply into our own lives. So let us consider in the opening three verses before us the father of the family, the father of the family. The Bible tells us there was a man whose name was Job. And so we see immediately that he's identified that Job is a man, Uz is his home. This was a place which would eventually become known as Edom as the Scriptures progress. But it's his character reference that grabs our attention. For as that first verse continues, it tells us that man, Job, was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And so here he's described as being truly an outstanding character. He's given a reference of character from heaven that stands out from all the other men of his era. We're not viewing a man who was without sin. Make no mistake about that. But we are viewing someone who in word and deed sought to do everything in his power to avoid sinning. And as God looked upon him, he describes Job as being upright. He describes Job as being moral. He describes Job as being without spot or blemish as he conducted his business affairs, as he lived in the community, as he fulfilled his role of husband and father, as he was that patriarch amongst patriarchs. He stood there as a man who was outstanding and upstanding in the view of God. This testimony was directly connected to the attitude attributed to him because he feared God, the Bible tells us. And in doing so, he fled from, did not countenance, did not entertain evil or sin in any of its forms in any area of his life. And truly that in itself should speak into our hearts today. Because how easy is it in the generation in which we live? How easy is it when faced with challenges in our own homes, within our own families, to, as it were, entertain or condone sin and evil? Job was not such a man. The Bible makes it very clear that what made him stand out 
was the fact that he feared God and fled from all appearance of evil. Because he did this, God blessed him. It tells us there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. God abundantly blessed his marriage. In verse 3, we see his substance also was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses, and a very great household. God richly blessed his labors. In verse 4, we're further gained insight into his home and into his family, for it tells us there, his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Seven times a year, at least, his family were gathered together. God richly blessed his family. But notice that with all the blessings and with all the prosperity, the Bible reveals to us that Job still always remembered his duty. Because it tells us there in the verse 5, it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Here was someone who continually acted upon the burden of his heart. In his role as a father, he still discharged spiritual care and concern for his children's well-being. Nowhere in these verses is an illusion given that sin was evident in the lives of his children. But rather, what is brought to our attention is the care and concern of a father for the spiritual welfare of his children. He recognized at all times, I believe, the spiritual ownership that God had of their lives, something which is very important as the story progresses, but nevertheless was found time after time interceding for the lives and for the spiritual health of his children. So we're introduced to a man who avoided even the very appearance of evil who feared God, who was considered by heaven to be one who stood out from among men, who took seriously, no matter that the years had passed and to a certain degree his influence had waned over his family, nevertheless had a real spiritual concern for their souls. We're introduced to the father of the family. But let us notice, secondly, then, the fierceness of the foe. The fierceness of the foe. Because it tells us in verse 6 there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. Here we're introduced now to Satan. And perhaps most surprisingly of all, we find him here right in the very presence of God. 
A heavenly assembly is called, and Satan is found amongst them who gather. But as surprising as that may be, do not miss the reassuring message that's communicated in this. For here we see early proof of the great fact that one day we shall see for ourselves that every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Satan still answers to God. He still will answer to God. Upon that day, he will soon receive what is his due reward for all that he has been engaged in throughout the generations. And so Satan may be our adversary, but he answers to God just like every other created being. And there in verse 7, when God says, Whence comest thou? God is again asking a question just like he did in the beginning of our Bibles to Adam. For this is a question that divine omniscience already knew the answer to. But nevertheless, as Satan is here found in the presence of God, as this question is posed to him, a question that God already knew the answer to, but nevertheless, it was a question that God asked and was designed to elicit a response in the moment. Satan says, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. This confirms to us Satan's standing as the prince of the power of the air. He has the ability to roam freely all across the globe. Now continue on in verse 8, and it tells us that after Satan uh, uh, testifies of this, that the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and eschewth evil, the exact same testimony that's given to us at the beginning of the book. But verse 8 not only confirms who Job was, verse 8 confirms to us why Job went through all he did. Because here we see that everything that happens here in the life of Job was permitted according to the sovereign will of God. And miss not the truth that still is relevant today as it was well over seven and a half thousand years ago that at work and every, uh, work and every trial and every trouble we come to is the plan of Satan and the plan of God. Satan rises to this. Satan would love nothing better than to have his way with Job. Satan knows and is able to confirm for himself what God has already said about Job. So work in God's trial, or in Job's trial, is undoubtedly the hand of God. But remember also the scheme of Satan. 
Satan desires at all times in every believer's life to devour, to overwhelm. Satan seeks to blind the eyes and the minds of people. Satan seeks to steal away the truth of God's Word. Satan seeks to oppose the work of God. He seeks to oppose the people of God. Satan is at all times working to deceive the very nations. Verses 9 to 11, we see that Satan's plan for Job was to ruin his testimony. He didn't care what he had to do to accomplish this. He said to God in verse 9, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made an hedge about him and about his house and all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. Oh yes, Job is a prosperous man. Job is a blessed man. And Job is a man who is of upstanding character. But I tell you, God, that if Job is oppressed, if Job knows the removal of the divine protection that you have placed around him, then Job will lose everything, including his testimony, in an instant. That's the plan of Satan. That was the desire of Satan. As he came into the life of Job in this moment. And as we have here upon Scripture revealed to us who Satan is and how Satan works in our world and indeed in our lives, understand that yes, even in the trials that you face, very often Satan is desiring the same thing in your trouble. Desires to ruin your testimony. Desires to destroy your life, your spiritual life. Make no mistake about it. The foe you face in your life is willing to engage in war in any area of your life to accomplish that plan. Tell me this morning, how would you fare if the sovereign will of God allowed Satan to wage war against you today? The scriptures remind us that Satan is powerful. He's not to be underestimated. But he's not all-powerful. Only God is. God had a hedge placed about you. God had placed a bound on his life over which Satan could not cross. But make no mistake about it, Satan is a formidable foe. He's an opportunist. He's a strategist. He is not omniscient, nor indeed omnipresent, but he has unfettered access in our world. He is finite in his power and his resources, but he still possesses greater power than you and I. 
still possesses a greater power than you and I have naturally within our own being. But Satan can only do what he is permitted to do. There's one other thing we do well to note in verse, verses 9 and 10. Is Satan laying down the challenge to God? He says, Doth God, or doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made an hedge about him, about his house, about all that he hath? Hast thou not blessed the work of his hands, his substance is increased in the land? But put forth your hand now and touch all that he hath. He will curse thee to thy face. Satan here is making the charge that the only reason that Job lived for God and worshipped God was all because of what God had given to him. Surely that challenges our hearts as we consider even our response when faced with such trials and difficulties. Is our motivation for worshiping God, is our motivation for serving God, is it all because of an expectation of His blessing? Or as it is, as we've been thinking as we studied heaven, because He is worthy. Could God be challenged as to the quality and the veracity of our worship this morning? God be challenged as to why we're engaged in his service. Or when the final day comes and all our works are put through the fire, will it be that we have served God for naught? Because we didn't serve him for who he was. Satan's plan is enacted then in the life of Job. We come to tragedy. We come to horror. We come to pain. From prosperity to poverty. In a moment. So consider with me the furnace of faith. We've seen the, the father of the family, the fierceness of the foe. But this is the furnace of faith. Can you imagine for just a few moments how Job felt? Many of us, no doubt, would volunteer to be like Job. To know his wealth, to enjoy his family, to have his reputation with God and with man. But how many of us would volunteer to experience his sufferings? And you might say, well, a few moments ago you said that at work in every trial and trouble, 
is the plan of God and the plan of Satan. But as I read the rest of the chapter, where is the plan of God? You know, as we read down through this passage, we are reminded of this truth. That when it comes to the trials and the troubles of life, when it comes to those things that enter in and change everything in a moment, we don't always have to understand. But we do always have to trust. Nowhere in God's Word does it confirm to us, reveal to us, or promise to us that when it comes to hardship and trouble and trial, that God will always reveal why. But each and every time we are reminded that we are obligated to the what? Trust in God. We have to trust in an unfailing, always loving God. We have to trust that God is God and that He will do what He pleases, when He pleases, with whom He pleases, how He pleases. You might be here this morning going through a trial. Might even be a trial in which you stand to lose everything. You might say, Where's God in all of my trials? Where's God in all of my trouble? I tell you this morning that God is in your trial in exactly the same place as he was in Job's trial. Because verse 12 tells me that God was on the throne. Despite the hardship that has come, the trouble and the trial that has entered in, God remains to be on the throne. And yes, you may not be able to understand it, and I may not be able to fully explain it. But God asks us all this morning just to trust. Trust that in all things, at all times, He is working all things together for our good and His eternal glory. Trust that at all times, He knows what He's doing. And His way is best. Next week, God willing, we'll continue as we look into Job's reaction. We'll enter into His response. We'll see as he sits in poverty and pity, reflecting upon all that has gone on. But I tell you, through it all, you'll see one who trusted God. Yes, many were the questions, many were the debates, and many were the struggles. But God was God. God was that one who chose to do what he wanted, when he wanted, how he wanted, with the person whom he wanted. And that remains true for us today. And just like the final hymn that we're going to sing together, our role in all of this, our response in all of this, is to hold on to a God who is ever faithful. 
and trust that he knows best. To that end, let's sing together. Lord, I come before your throne of grace. I find rest in your presence and fullness of joy. In worship and wonder, I behold your face, singing, What a Faithful God Have I. and we thank thee indeed that that is the continual refrain of Scripture, that our God is a faithful God. We're thankful, Father, that no matter what enters in and no matter the trouble, the trial that we come to, that thou art one who remains unchanged. Upon the throne thou dost always sit, thou dost behold the tune and the throwing of men. Thou dost allow according to thy sovereign purpose and will even these things to occur in our lives. Now, Lord, our obligation through it all is to trust in thine all-wise and very often unseen hand. And so, Father, help us to 
place that faith and confidence in one who never fails. Help us, O Lord, not to rely on our own strength, but help us to rely on the one who is greater in us than he that is in the world. So hear us as we pray. Depart us now with thy blessing. Even those who leave us, take them to our homes in safety. And for us who tarry around thy table, bless, O Lord, our time of remembrance. For us in Jesus' name we pray.